As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. I'm Alan Olga, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Um and uh are incredibly valuable to our listeners. They do all sorts of things. For one, they help them remember what we say. They help recognize what we're going to say in terms of words or story points faster than when we don't use an um and uh. Um, they're incredibly good signposts for a listener, and there is substantive research that suggests that you do a solid to your listener when you're using um and uh. That's Valerie Fridland. She's professor of linguistics in the English department at the University of Nevada, Reno. And while her research is properly academic, she also enjoys talking to general audiences about the quirky ways in which we use language. It was getting questions from those audiences, probably from people like me, that led her to write her wonderfully titled book, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today because I expect this to be not only fascinating, but a life-changing experience for me. Well, it is so totally thrilling for me to be on here, and I'm using some of my favorite language tics in describing that. <laughs> <laughs> so, right? So and totally. Yeah. Well, I expect this to be life-changing because my wife, Arlene, has notified me in subtle and unsubtle ways that I tend to be curmudgeon about changes in language. You're not alone. <laughs> and you're going to tell me that I should welcome these changes, that it's good for me to get, to go through this pain of well, hearing. Well, I'm trying not to lecture, but yes, I am in short. <laughs> <laughs> Just in a nutshell, why, why would you say it's, it's good that these changes are taking place, sometimes in ways that sound contradictory to what's meant or that seem to be distracting or wasting time filling in? Why should I look on it with a more open mind? <laughs> well, I mean, if you look back through the history of language, this has been how language has changed through time. And I think when we say we don't like things or they bother us, it's just because we're not used to them. But almost everything we say today, you can trace back to an earlier period where some linguistic curmudgeon, usually parents, were complaining about the way those, you know, Middle English people spoke. So language has evolved or else we would be able to read Beowulf. And all of us who suffered through Beowulf in high school know very, very well that we can't understand it, or even Shakespeare. My kids were reading Romeo and Juliet last year, and both of them were complaining how unintelligible it was. So, mm. you know, no one would say Shakespeare sucks because we can't understand what he says, but I don't think any of us still want to speak that way, um, nor do we think it's necessarily the best way to talk. And in fact, Shakespeare was a little body in his time. So language naturally evolves. When we stand in its way, then we are blocking 
being the natural evolution of what our brains and our mouths want us to do. We dislike it because it's different for us. It's new and nobody likes new things. I mean, I hate my iPhone for just that reason. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like the way it talks to me. No, me neither. Or that finger and face print. I mean, who needs that? But things like, I mean, I have a list. I won't go down my whole list that, that get me. When I see talking heads on television start a sentence with, I mean. Oh, just like I did back there. I did throw that one in there for you, Alan. I did. I didn't even hear it. Anyway, I'm dedicated to not being critical of my guests. (laughs) We appreciate that. But what's the purpose of I mean at the beginning of a sentence before you've even said anything? I mean should mean something like, let me clarify that or let me see if I can dig deeper into it. But it means something else now. It means I'm thinking while I answer your question or something like that. Well, it's really like, like something that has evolved as a discourse marker, which is simply for conversational cohesion. It's really all about keeping the wheels of conversation rolling. And part of, I think, your problem and others that are a little curmudgeonly with language is yeah. we, want, we want things to mean things. We want it to be a literal translation of what we intended to say. We don't want these little fillers in there. We don't want these indicators or markers in there. But half of, or in fact, I'd say three quarters of what language does is not share information, but share information about who we are as social creatures, who we are in terms of our relationships, how we're going to add to or signal to the person that was saying something before that we're making an important addition or that we're going to say something contrastive or that we want to be considerate of what they said. And it takes new things all the time in order for us to indicate to our listeners how we feel about them and how we feel about what we're talking about. I mean, is simply a development of that. What really gets me is when a sentence begins, well, you know, I mean, and <laughs> all three at, at once. What's the use of that? Why should I be happy that that's happening? Well, all right. Tell me what is wrong with it. Why does it bother you so much? I think that's the better thing is to flip it. It, bo- it it's, it's really something that's just simply sometimes puzzle, right? We might be trying to figure out how we're going to respond to something someone says, and we don't want to leave silence there. Because silence can be problematic for a number of reasons. One is culturally, we don't tend to like silence. American English speakers, for example, even more than British English speakers, don't leave a lot of pauses between terms. It's uncomfortable for us when someone leaves that. But also silence gives your conversational partner time to jump in on the floor and take your turn. So there's that. And there's also the fact that we're trying to indicate to our listener I have something that's maybe going to be a little conflicting with what you were saying, or I'm trying to show some sort of considerateness from a conversational perspective. You know, we tend to sometimes overdo it, and and maybe that's what's annoying to you. So I won't, I'm not going to justify sticking three in a row, but I will say that (laughs) sticking one in there has really no problem because it's about having good conversations. And that's what we want. Well, you've already changed my approach to it. Well, next time I hear it, it'll be, my my reaction will be more like, oh, something interesting is coming up, a, a, a different idea is coming up. Might be worth paying attention to. That would be perfect. The changes are really interesting when you look at the history as you do in your book. The dropping of the R in English, instead of saying hard, 
Say hard. Hard. When the upper class in England started doing that, I think that was called the King's English. Actually, the dropping of R in British English is really fascinating um, history because it has less to do with the king and more to do with the lower classes and women. Mm. So it is not an upper class feature by nature. It started actually as a what was considered a sort of crass feature. And in fact, you can find people talking about it in the 1700s as a weird thing happening to the R's in British English, um, where they say things like, um, R in London has completely disappeared, and I'm not mm. sure why it's so weak in this language, you know, where they're not saying good things about it. So early on, R dropping was actually a lower class feature. But it And seemed- you mentioned women. Women, yes. How did women contribute to this? Probably because um, back in that period, for one, they didn't have as much literacy, so they didn't have the reinforcement of a written word to say, oh, there's an R in that word. Hmm. So when they heard the word pronounced hard as hard, it sounded right to them, and they didn't have an R in write- written form to cement, oh, no, it's supposed to have an R in there. And men, ele- educated men at the time, did. Also because women weren't considered to be good talkers, as men were at the time. They weren't the educated, learned group. And so when they said things, they were more interested in making it fashionable and cool than making it correct. And there wasn't even really strong notions of correctness at that time. So women would often start using features that were very naturally evolving. A lot of those were already in sort of immigrant speech or other dialect. And then the women were the ones that led fashion back then, just like they do today. So their speech became fashionable and got picked up by others, which then spread the change so that by the 19th century, R was all that. And it was cool. Interesting that it would be picked up from women, especially given the lack of interest in hearing women talk in the first place, going so far as to have a practice of the sins of the tongue. Yes. That's that's an amazing result of the disinterest in hearing what women have to say. Right. Well, we've never really put a lot of respect into women's voices and women's speech. And in fact, that starts with Aristotle and before, where the silent woman was the golden one. And then during the Middle Ages, Women that had gossip um, that would spread rumors or just truthful gossip that would want things changed, enacted in their towns. A lot of times they were charged with criminal activity called sins of the tongue. And it was by far women charged much more than men for that crime because they were they had loose lips and, and dangerous tongues. And in fact, you know, you can often hear proverbs from that time that talk about women's sharp tongues or their devil tongues. And that was because... Mm. Anything women said that could be controversial could stir up a lot of problems because they would speak with a lot of the other women at the spinning circles or at the place they went to get water or things like that, spreading problems for those in power and spreading problems for men. And so one way to silence them was to charge them. But what I think you forget is that women go home to men and they go home even more importantly to children. And who do children Mm. get forged by? Women. So women's speech often becomes what's the right speech or the speech that's picked up by the next generation. And that's what's really pivotal in forming the norms of tomorrow. I was really uh, struck by the punishment. It wasn't just a sin that was punished by God later after you die. They'd punish them right then and there with that thing. What was it called? Some kind of a helmet. A sco- a it was called a scold's bridle. And it's sort of, yes. Scold's bridle. It's really, it's a tongue. It had a metal piece that would go in the mouth. It was basically a mask, sort of like Hannibal Lecter was forced to wear, except this one had a piece of metal that went in your mouth to depress your tongue so you couldn't talk. And you would be forced to wear that for days on end. Almost unthinkable. But it reinforces this, this whole 
part of the conversation reinforces the idea that language changes from the bottom up mostly, huh? Yes, and it's really fascinating, isn't it, that that's where change starts because we usually think of people in the upper crust bringing on innovation, but actually it's the lower classes. So what about uh and um? Oh, I love uh and um. Oh, wait, wait, before that, maybe we ought to get to so. I just started a sentence with so. You did. Well, that sentence initial so. There are so many fabulous so's. Um, it is so interesting. So the one, and see there, I just did it. And once you do so, it's like popcorn. You can't stop eating them and you can't I stop know. saying them. There's sentence initial so, which is sort of which is sort of saying, I have a backstory to what we were talking about, and I'm gonna tell it to you now. Um, or I want to switch topics, and we were on this one topic, and I'm going to switch it. Those are the sentence initial so's that we hear. But one of the most interesting so's is actually intensifier so, which is a little different than the so you start a sentence with. And that's when you say, I'm so totally excited. I'm so happy. I'm so tired. I'm so excited. That kind of so is called an intensifier so, and it actually traces back to Old English where it was swa but has developed over time into an intensifier, which is so. So what gets me crazy, what I try to help scientists work on, is not answering a question beginning with the word so, because what it sounds like to my ear is, I heard what you asked, I'm going to start someplace else and give an answer that I'd prefer to deal with rather than the subject you brought up. It's, it almost sounds like an excommunication. <laughs> I think it depends on context. You know, a lot of times in natural conversations, people don't seem to have problems with knowing where that so is going. Um, but hmm. you could say, let me tell you a little bit about the background first. I mean, you could be more explicit if that's what you're intending. Hmm. But I think the problem is when we're in fast, rapid conversations, we don't always think through overtly what we're intending to do. Our brains work so quickly, and that backstory so is actually a shortcut for me to cut through the crap of having to explain where I'm going because I'm just thinking on my feet and going really quickly into it. I was about you to say me. so there. I was about to say so there. <laughs> <laughs> so is the way of hanging on to the conversation, too. Right. Hanging on to your end of it. You remind me of something that is just beginning, in my opinion, to appear. I, don't, I, I haven't heard it until recently, but I've heard it a number of times. Somebody says something, and then the other person says, no, yes. Oh, the no, yeah, or yeah, no. That's off. That's yeah, really what is fascinating. That? That? What, what are they saying? That's a pretty new feature. And some of these haven't been studied as much as sort of some of the features I talk about in my book because they haven't been around that long. Um, and that one's really interesting. And the work that I've seen about it suggests that what happens is usually it's when someone's responding to a two-part question or two parts of a conversation where they're saying, yes, that's true, but no, this part's not true, or no, I didn't do that, but yes, I'd like to do that. So they're actually trying to indicate to you that there's no straight answer. It's not a simple yes or no, but there's two parts to their answer, one which is in the affirmative and one which is a negation. Does that make sense? Right. It does. And I, I wonder if it might also be in some cases similar to the no that people say when someone interrupts them and says, I'm sorry for interrupting. The next thing the interrupted person usually says is no. 
Oh, I'm meaning, not, I'm trying to figure. Meaning yeah. that's okay. I no offense taken. Oh, not no. Don't interrupt me. <laughs> yeah, it's that's no, what I thought. No, you meant. No, I thought how no, people don't, don't usually say that. that. <laughs> yeah. I th- people are polite. I mean, I think one of the things. Oh my goodness! Now I'm going to say I mean all the time because you brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's a virus. It is contagion. View of I mean. When we come back from our break, Valerie Fridland and I really do get around to ahs and ums and some surprises. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other in all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid, and thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the California Road Trip Republic, we believe you take adventure for a ride. Whether coastal cruising, mountain motoring, or redwood roaming. Discover beauty around every turn. Your California road trip can kick off from anywhere. Starting route. But it should always start at visitcalifornia.com. Then buckle up, crank those tunes, and ride with us in the California Road Trip Republic. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Valerie Fridland. Now, the question of uh and um, you really made me see that in a different light. I really thought at first that it was a waste of everybody's time while you hold the floor, while you try to think of that thing that is your favorite thing to talk about but doesn't come up at the moment. But I've learned from you that it's really important not only to the speaker but to the listener. Yes, um and uh are so fascinating. And I, too, probably when I first was starting my research on those two features, had that same opinion about um and uh, that when you do public speaking or when you're just even having a conversation, that when people um and uh, it had to do with uncertainty or hesitation. And it certainly does do that to a degree. But what I was unprepared for in my first foray into those topics was the vast amount of research that shows that um and uh are incredibly valuable 
valuable to our listeners. They do all sorts of things. For one, they help them remember what we say. They help us recognize what we're going to say in terms of words or story points faster than when we don't use an um and uh. Um, They're incredibly good signposts for a listener, and there is substantive research that suggests that you do a solid to your listener when you're using um and uh. The study that I've heard you talk about where the word that's used after um was remembered better by the listener than words that were not preceded by um. Is that, is that correct? Do I have that yes, right? Yes, that is right. There were uh, there have been a number of studies of that nature, but one really fun one was where they had a video screen that they had participants look at, and they had different icons, different pictures on the screen. So one would be, for example, a candle. The other one might have been a horse, and then they would have a camel, and then, you know, maybe a pencil. So they'd have these images, and they would ask listeners to move a cursor to a certain word when they heard it. So they would say something, now point at the camel or the candle. And so they would measure the reaction time um, and processing time of people to go point at that specific icon. So what was fascinating, though, when they had mentioned one before, so say they were talking about candles early in the experiment, and then they said, now move your cursor to the candle. Right before they, the candle, when they had a pause, they would notice people would start, you know, moving towards the candle because when, as soon as they heard the cut, they thought, oh, we've been talking about candles. It's got to be a candle. But when people put an uh or an um in there beforehand, they didn't go to the candle, even though that's what they had just been talking about. When they started saying cut, people were like, oh, it must be something that I haven't heard before. It's going to be the camel. And they started picking the camel, which was the word that was following. And it seems to be that um or uh signal to our listener that new information is coming. And it makes our brain actually integrate new information faster. We have um, event-related potential studies that show brain activity, and they show that when you have an um or a uh, it shows less effort at new information integration than when you don't use one before a word or a phrase. So it's fascinating. And that's something that we found by trial and error under the radar. We surely didn't know that by saying um before a word, the listener would remember it better. No, absolutely. I think people have been trying to figure out what they were for because they're so interesting from a universality perspective because every language has some form of um or uh. So it's natural whenever we have things that are universal that researchers think, well, why do we have these? They don't seem to be doing anything. In fact, they're verbal riffraff. But let's research them to see what they do. And I think that's really how it started this kind kind of work. I was interested to see that women tend to prefer um over uh. Is there any understanding yet of why that would be? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. Um, you know, the other thing is men long for longer have preferred uh. Men actually use more filled pauses overall than women do, as do older speakers than younger speakers. But when you break down the type of filled pauses that men and women prefer and older versus younger speakers prefer, what you find is there's a big lean towards um among 
women and younger speakers, which suggests it's kind of a new change coming in into the language because women and, and young speakers generally lead change. Whereas if mm. you look at older speakers and men, they, they still uh more. But even with men, you find them starting to shift towards um. So that does suggest we have a new change on the horizon. And there are a couple of theories about why. One of my favorite theories is a sound symbolism theory, which talks about sound symbolism is a field that thinks about the meaning of sounds. Like what do they tell us? What, what things does the sound itself tell us? So, so it sounds like mmm has some special advantage. And think about it. If someone punches you in the stomach, what sound do you make? Oi. Ugh. Right? <laughs> Ugh. You don't make, you say um. But if someone gives you something good to eat, you say mmm. So it's actually a more pleasant sound. And while that might yeah. seem ridiculous, it actually seems to be true that we do have preferences in sound. So that might be one reason that it's a politer sound. And historically, women tend towards more polite things. But it also probably has to do with um, the lexification or the grammaticization, meaning making into a, a, a different meaning over time of the word um as having a meaning of wait, wait a second, or um, I'm going to be indelicate here. So, you know, when you say like he was um going to the bathroom, it sort of it sort of indicates I'm going to say something a little indelicate. It's actually a marker. Right. And I think women tend to pick up on conversational markers quicker than men. And so as it's moved to have that meaning, women and younger speakers pick it up faster. Well, the, the connection between mm and something good explains why Campbell's Soup didn't use as their slogan, uh-uh, good. <laughs> That's exactly right. I don't think that would have gone as well. And think about the other thing, uh-uh is also negative. So yeah, you probably right, don't exactly. want to say that. Yeah. So all yeah. sorts of all sorts of reasons why uh is losing ground. So I got halfway through so at the beginning there and I stopped myself. What about like? Like has many more meanings than than we usually associate with it. And some of them are really hard to take. <laughs> wondering if you were like lover or not. I'm taking that as a no. <laughs> <laughs> you can take it as an uh-uh. <laughs> um, oh, see, now we're going to be doing driving all your listeners crazy by all our speech habits. Well, like is a hotbed of controversy. And I have to say that when I first started making the rounds, giving public talks years ago, I would give a, you know, in my opinion, phenomenal talk about vowels and how they were changing in American English, which I found fascinating. And people would clap and be happy. And then they'd come up to me afterwards. And instead of saying, wow, I learned so much about vowels, they would say something like, now, can you tell people to stop saying like all the time? That would be their <laughs> response because that's what they thought. Oh, a linguist. I've got to get her on my side with like, but I am afraid I will not be convinced. <laughs> like is actually a fabulous new feature of English, and it's not going to go away, I hate to say. I mean, some features that we don't like will fade over time, but like will not be one of them. It has become very useful in a bunch of different new ways that have a true power and purpose, and young speakers simply know how to do it better in those regards. So point me to it. I can't, I can't quite get it. <laughs> I'd be happy to. I'm going to make you a like speaker before we're done. So let's oh, think. Oh, instead of saying I like that, I'm going to say I'm like all over that. Like so, yes, you are. <laughs> yes, I will. I promise you, you will say like before the end of this conversation in a discourse marker sort of way. I'm going to get it out of you. 
One way that we're using like in a new way is as an approximating adverbial. And I think when you think about it that way, it makes it sound so much more intellectual that it will convert people it's to so, being so like I'm lovers. so intellectual, <laughs> I can't understand it. Exactly. What do you, what do you mean? I'm going to break it down for you. I just wanted you to know that it's doing something important. So when It's already you, got a name, so that's good. <laughs> okay, good. you got me halfway there with a fancy name. <laughs> All right, so when you are talking about something that you're estimating or you're giving a roundabout figure, you need to indicate to your listener somehow that what you're saying is not you're not trying to be exact. You're not trying to lie to them if you're wrong about the number you're giving them, but you're just estimating it. So usually in standard English, we use about as a as what we call an approximating adverbial, which means mm-hmm. I would say something like, he's about five years old, or he it's about 20 pounds. That's an approximating adverbial, the about right there. Like has simply become a new approximating adverbial. So I'd say, well, he's like 10 pounds or he, it's like 100 years old. So it's a one-to-one substitution for something that's already well accepted and serves a purpose. It's just not as well accepted, but it still serves that same purpose. And if we look at like over time, it has already shifted. And the way we use it is already far afield from where it was in the 12th century when it was just an adjective and a verb. So preposition-like, so when I say he has eyes like the sky, which sounds very romantic and literary, that actually wasn't used until about the 1500s. So that already, really? I know, shocking. Yes, the like Get that you say, town. you're already a rebel rouser with your like, Alan. I'm just telling you. <laughs> I'm part of the new wave you from are. 400 years ago. <laughs> exactly. You just take a few more years to, to jump on that bandwagon. I knew I was a rebel at heart. <laughs> And that's just one of the ways. And we also have quotative-like, and we have stance marker-like, but all of them are purposeful. Don't they all get in the way of one another? Is it good that one word should mean so many things? Wouldn't it be better if we had a hundred words for snow the way native tribes are supposed to have? I don't believe they have that many. Uh, They don't. Actually, that's a really interesting myth that's very far from the truth. But that's for a whole other book. Um, Yes, yeah. it, it doesn't. You know, if you look at the history of English, it has always had language words that change over time and bend and sway with the way that we need them to mean things at that time. And all of them are contextually driven. So I'm not going to get concerned with, you know, getting confused with a simile or a conjunction like when I'm using like as a discourse marker or as a quotative, because we are able to do very, very detailed syntactic analysis when we hear someone speak. And we can tell when like is part of the content or the literal syntax and when it's sort of peripheral to it. And then we can analyze it in a different way. So I think the basic thing is we're smarter than you're giving us credit for in (laughs) dealing with that. (laughs) Well, okay, I don't don't want to miss this one. The vocal fry. Mm. Where does it come from? Why is it an improvement? Should I be happy about the vocal fry? And why is it called fry? And would you demonstrate it so everybody knows what we're talking about? I would be happy to do that. I did oh, it right. There it is. There it is. Yeah. So it's sort of I that, can't even do it. It well, you probably can, but it's just harder because you're you have a, already a low pitched voice and vocal fry is basically when your voice drops to a lower pitch than you were using previously. Your missions, if you should accept it. <laughs> is to show me why that's a good thing. 
Well, it is a good thing, but I want to clarify too something that none of these are better necessarily than things we used to do. They're just different. And that is basically the evolution of language. So uh, better is such a a evaluative term and things don't necessarily change because they're better. They change because there's a cognitive desire or an articulatory desire from our sort of um, evolutionary standpoint to move that direction and a social trigger to make it happen. So that's sort of, I, I just wanted to clarify that, but it is, it is, is not bad, and that's the critical thing to take away. We call it fry. I'm actually truly not sure because that's not what linguists call it. I don't know who first came up that lovely um, moniker for it, but I'm guessing it has to do with the sound that food makes when you fry it, that uh, popping sound. That would be yeah. my guess. And, you know, we love to give cute names to things. Um, so pop, for example, the soda is the wor- the sound that a, a top makes when it leaves the bottle. That's why it's called uh. pop. So there's all these fun little language names that we come up with. But in linguist circles, we call it creak or creaky voice, which also is pretty descriptive because it's kind mm. of creaky like this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's really about what the social world tells us we should do and how we should behave that tends to trigger language to evolve in certain ways. And vocal fry is a great example. The reason that we notice vocal fry, and particularly on women's voices, is because women have increasingly gone into professional context. So they're increasing in the professional world and their visibility on the airwaves as journalists as well and reporters has increased. They have taken a lot of hits for having high-pitched voices. If you look back in the early days of radio, and actually even in the 50s and 60s, high-pitched voices on radio and television were not looked upon fondly. So women seem to have adopted vocal fry as a way of countering this high pitch is bad in professional circles sort of thing. So that adding a little low pitch excursion in your voice allows you to uh, sort of achieve the positive benefit that lower pitch voices in terms of intelligence, competence, ratings, and um, professional ratings have always enjoyed. So it's really about social evolution. Which reminds me of the singular they, which everybody is needing to get a little more familiar with and more acceptance of. You say a very interesting thing about how some of us have trouble accepting the idea that they went into a store and had a soda Whereas well, you're talking about when Mary went into a store and they had a soda. So you're talking about one person. But originally, or, or a long time ago, we said thee and thou and changed it to you, which, is, which was plural. And we don't have a problem with my talking to you and calling you you. I don't, I don't need to call you thou. And I don't say you is, I say you are. Right. And you could call me thou. I would not be upset with that. I'm happy. I'm happy to be <laughs> I don't thou. know you well enough. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> well, you know, yes, I think it's really funny because if we look back 300 years, um, which often we don't do, and that's why we hate the things we say today— we could find the same kinds of complaints about using you as we find about using singular they today. So uh, grammarians like Robert Loth and Lindley Murray would complain about how it was ungrammatical to use you as a singular. And not only that, but most people don't realize that you is actually objective case, not nominative case, which means in plain English, it's not supposed to be used for subjects at all. It's supposed to be used for objects. So ye, <laughs> ye is actually a subject case. So when you had a subject saying like, I did this, you would say ye or you did this, it'd be ye did this. But not only did we move you to the subject 
position, we also started making what was once plural singular. And then we, to top it off, we started using plural verbs with it. All of this happened before any of us were born, so all of us do it without any problems today. Singular they is essentially that same sort of shift. Pronouns have always changed over time. In fact, they is not the original one in English either. It was brought in by the Vikings. And so now it's just a matter of getting used to this grammatical shift because a lot of times in our grammar, in our head, we have it linked to being being plural. And so it's just a matter of adjusting our knowledge to say, oh, it's actually also singular. And I can use a plural verb and it's going to be like you and take a plural verb, whether I'm talking about one they or two they's. So it's just a matter of practice. Well, I'm starting to get the idea that things that change may not be in the good category or the best category, but they're not necessarily in the category of bad. And it's just people learning to communicate together in a more efficient way. As, as it starts to gain traction, those of us who are steadfast and remaining still uh, are going to be left out of the conversation. So we've got to be open to the change in some respect. That's right. No one wants to be a linguistic dinosaur. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Well, I must say, in the short time we've had, you have changed my life and you have opened my mind. And I look forward to all kinds of listening to words that don't make me puke anymore. <laughs> I just want to hear you say like one time, happily, with a smile on your face. <laughs> I'm like totally with you, dude. Oh, so um, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can take much more of this <laughs> Time for us to close our conversation, but we always end every show with seven quick questions. Uh -oh. are, you, are you game? <laughs> I'm game. No, Let's do it. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, you know what? I would really, really love to understand quantum physics. Me too. That's a hard one. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Very politely. <laughs> <laughs> I usually just say, you know, I don't think it was that way, but maybe I'm wrong. I usually try to actually hedge it with, we could both be right, but then tell them what's actually right. Yeah, it gets, it gets hard sometimes if you're talking to a flat earther. <laughs> Absolutely. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Um, if I can get people to stop saying like, because if I had that power, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> what? How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, that one's a hard one. But, uh, you know, you can either walk away or you could just sort of politely start talking to them when they allow what we call a turn transition point, which all of us give these cues when we're sort of winding down. And sometimes we also give them when we're just taking a moment. You just have to be quick to jump in there. The other thing is to simply say politely, oh, I'd love to tell you something about that. Uh. And then make something up. Yes, yes. Well, just, you know, you, you just try <laughs> to get the in subject. there. Yes, that's yes. hard. That's hard. So then, then, then that's when you start with so. Yes, exactly. Now, is that a hint, Alan? Uh <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's one. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation? You know, I actually love to talk to strangers. Um, so normally what I do is I notice something about them because people generally 
like to have conversations about things they're comfortable with, the most comfortable part of us is always something we know about ourselves. So I usually ask people a question about them, like, oh, that's such an interesting book you have there. Can you tell me about it? Because I'm looking for a new book. You know, something Mm. like that, that asks them about something they have in their environment that you can notice is often very good. Or even, where did you get that sweater? Now, that might be weird if you're a guy and it's a girl, so you want to be careful about that. You don't want to be inappropriate. (laughs) But generally, I find the best conversations are those that start off by asking someone about themselves. Okay, next to last, what gives you confidence? Well, talking to you, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I I have so much you can tell me. Well, yes, exactly. Um, You know, what really gives me confidence is my children. When I look at how they have turned out, despite my my attempts to ruin them, I think that there is hope for the world. (laughs) I think sometimes we think about things darkly and we get all caught up in the bad stuff in the world. But when we look at this next generation that we've created, despite all the things we might be doing to them, I feel pretty confident that they're going to change the world in a positive way. And we'll understand them. Oh, hopefully. I don't know that I always understand my kids, but maybe that's intentional. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Oh, that's a really good one. Well, I would say my own book <laughs> because I've, <laughs> I've done a lot of research in it. But do you know what actually is a book that most people don't think of, but it's a phenomenally fascinating book is the Oxford English Dictionary. Mm. It is. I think it changed my life because when I first was exposed to it many, many, many years ago as a graduate student, what I realized is the history that all words have. And as a person interested in language, it made me realize that things exist far beyond the moment that we're in. And when we start to look back, we see how things like wars and invasion and massive sociocultural shift have all impacted everything we say. And learning the history of words, for me at least, that has been uh, life-changing. I agree with you. The etymology of words in a good dictionary is the most interesting thing about the definition because you see, you see how people thought and connections that they made between the meaning of a word in one century and, and language and in another. And I, I, I love that. I, I agree with you completely. What a, what a good conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm glad. It's, I'm so glad. It was a great conversation. I hope I didn't talk too much. Now I'm wondering if I'm a compulsive talker. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Valerie Fridland is professor of linguistics in the English department at the University of Nevada, Reno. She writes a popular language blog for Psychology Today called Language in the Wild. The book we talked about is Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio, You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.
Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Susan Golden Meadow. And just as Valerie Fridland revealed how words that to some of us seem annoying actually help the listener as well as the speaker, so Susan Golden Meadow has found that gestures once frowned upon also help you as well as those you're talking to to communicate better. Gesturing actually lightens your cognitive load. So if you gesture while expressing something while doing a task, you actually have more effort left over to do the task than if you don't gesture. So it's not at all clear to me it's bad for you. I think it is cognitively quite good for you. And it's certainly good for your listener because it tells the listener all kinds of things about you. Susan Golden Meadow, author of Thinking With Your Hands, The Surprising Science Behind How Gestures Shape Our Thoughts, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Your Space Coast vacation is preparing for liftoff. Start counting down now. 10, 9, 8, 7, it's time for a beach vacay that feels like heaven. 6, 5, 4, come explore Melbourne and the beaches. 3, 2, 1, it's time for some rocket-filled fun. Count down to your best beach vacation ever on Florida's Space Coast. Launch your planning now at visitspacecoast.com. We're starting a movement with Lazy Boy. Well, technically, it's more of a don't movement. We work full-time and parent full-time. Our feet will be in the upright position, and our podcast will be listened to fully reclined. Now that we've completely checked off our to-do list, we'll be checking off our to-don't list until further notice. We, the lazy, are taking back lazy, all from the comfort of our Lazy Boy furniture. Lazy Boy. Long live the lazy. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.